So in our walk through Romans, we're entering now a second part of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, this would be chapters 5 through 8, the second part. In the first four chapters, we, we, we kind of uh, got a sense from Paul what the heart of the gospel is about. Uh, the fact that he introduced us to Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Lord of the, the universe, recognizing uh, that we as a people have failed to be what God wants us to be. And so God comes to us in Jesus Christ. And God offers us the opportunity to be right with God so that by our faith we become what Paul says means, what Paul says is being justified. Uh, being justified is the fact that we're right with God in and through uh, Jesus Christ. The first four chapters kind of gave us that sense of what that heart of that gospel is about. Now the next, uh, the next chapters, five through eight, are going to be um, looking at some assurances of this gospel. And so we'll, what we'll see is, again, we'll see that Paul raises some of these same themes from the first four chapters. He'll come back to some of those in five through eight. And much of what five through eight does is also set us up for the next section, which is chapters nine through eleven. So today we begin with uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, chapter 5, page 1752. Someone once said, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should always ask what it's there for. And um, so when Paul does that, you know he's now building on what he said before. Right? So what has happened in 1 through 4, he's now going to build on that. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. I noticed some of the children yesterday getting ready to watch the parade dancing in the street, bouncing around with their friends, each child under the watchful eye of a parent or grandparent or adult friend, each child oblivious to anything but their most immediate needs. It made me think that many children don't know just how good they've got it. And I suppose that's like most of us. We tend to scurry through life, attention captured by the immediate only occasionally do we stop to recognize the wonder all around us. I mean, seriously. There's a parade of God's goodness passing before us. As Christians, we live in a state of grace. 
We have a status, a a position in which we're surrounded by and we live in the amazing reality of God's grace. The realities of God's grace become clear to us in, in various ways. Paul begins by noting our new relationship with God. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No, Paul doesn't say that we have the peace of God. That might be true, that we have a sense that God gives us calm even in trouble. But here we're told we have peace with God. It means our hostilities with God are over. We're no longer at war with God. You remember what Paul said in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions were warped by our rebellion and idolatry. We wanted nothing to do with God. And without salvation, we're God's enemies. When we disobey, we stake claim to the right to act as we want. We claim kingship, authority over ourselves. Well, God claims authority over the same things. As creator, God has a claim on our lives. In sin, we stake a claim on our lives. So our claim puts us in conflict with God. We're at war with God. But now, but now we are justified, made right with God. God's grace enters our lives. We have peace with God. No more war. No more hostilities. When we are made right with God, justified, then God's anger is removed. Because of Jesus, there's this new state of affairs between us and God. Peace. In fact, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we come into God's presence. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This is temple language. It refers to certain people having the right to come near to where God is. Gaining access means that we have the right to approach God. Jesus Christ ushers us into God's royal throne room. And then notice what Paul says. We stand in God's presence. This is relational language. God wants to have a personal relationship with us. Wherever we go in this world, we are in the presence of God. We stand in grace. We live in grace. We are in this relationship with God. So not only does God remove the hostility, but God also welcomes us into a relationship. We live and we move and we have our being in God. We're confident that God will hear the requests and problems and failures we bring to him. That God's love surrounds us. That his generosity fills us. And in this state of grace, in this new relationship with God, we realize what God made us for. God helps us to recognize what human life should be like. When we really begin to take in the wonder of our relationship with God, I mean, we could almost burst with beauty, with the beauty and the power of it all. I mean, just stop for a moment. Paul's words are overwhelming. 
Our lives can be so consumed by work and family and activities, whatever's next on our list. I mean, listen to what Paul says. We're declared right with God. That's just not warm fuzzies in our hearts. It's more than just a sigh of relief that our sins are forgiven. Even greater than understanding that we're a part of God's people. I mean, sure, all of those things are true. But there's so much more. Professor N.T. Wright notes God's grandness. God's the creator of the world, transcendent over and above his creation. And yet because his very nature is love, it is completely natural for him to establish personal, one-to-one relations with every single one of us. I mean, reality check time. God wants a personal, one-to-one relationship with you. I mean, so often we see God as the one to get us out of life's fixes. I mean, we get into trouble or get stuck or get sick or in a situation beyond our control. So what do we do? We pray for God to show up to get us out of it so that we can just go along our merry merry way. Really? I mean, what if God wants more? What if God simply wants not to help us but to be with us. And what if our marriage doesn't heal? What if the kids still rebel? If friends betray, finances crumble away, our comfortable life, terror looms, or health worsens despite prayer? What if God opens the door to our room that's filled with trouble? What if God comes in, sits down, and says, let's just sit here together for a while? Perhaps a way to greater life is to accept God's invitation to sit with him. Perhaps even in darkness, that God wants us to seize the opportunity to know him better. To know him better. To enjoy the relationship we have with him. So that we can better represent God in this dark and very difficult world. See, that's what Paul's getting at. He wants us to realize what we were made for. And he points us toward our destiny. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In deep gratitude, we begin to capture and be captured by God's astounding goodness. His deep wisdom. His almighty power. His great joy. And in that moment, we realize that all the glory of God that was lost in our idolatry that was lost because of our sin, all of that glory of God is being returned. We can become the true reflections of God, the true image bearers we were made to be. That's what that 2 Corinthians 3 passage is all about that we said earlier in the service, that we reflect the Lord's glory being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. 
That's the hope of the glory of God that Paul's talking about here in Romans. It's the glory of living in God's presence now, despite the brokenness we face. It's the glory of knowing that one day the whole creation and we ourselves will be free from all corruption. It's the glory of knowing that we were made in God's image to bear His likeness in the world. So until then, Until that time when that is completely true of all of us, even in the midst of suffering, in God's presence, we have hope. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, says Paul, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Despite all the blessings Paul says are coming our way, life will not be easy street. Just because we belong to God doesn't mean that we won't face challenges. Believe in Jesus, but you won't be delivered from all sickness nor spared from all people who want to do you harm. We won't avoid suffering. Our lives will have tears, some more than others, but all of us will know what it's like to be afraid, to be emotionally wounded, to suffer the stings and arrows of life. But notice, Paul doesn't say that we celebrate our sufferings. He doesn't say that we boast about our sufferings sufferings, like we do our hope of the glory of God. No, what? look at what Paul says. We glory in our sufferings. That God will use our sufferings to transform us into the humans we were truly meant to be. You see the chain that Paul has there. Suffering leads to perseverance or patience. Patience brings about character, and character yields hope. And we get back to being in this hope of glory that we boast about. The gifts that come our way because we are right with God are glorious. We live in this unbelievable state of grace, welcomed into God's presence at peace and in hope. We are immersed in God's love. I mean, our hope for God's promises to be delivered will happen. We will be rescued from God's wrath because God will be true to his word. Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, there's two ways that this love becomes real. One, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we really are the true covenant family of God. We who believe the gospel and belong to Jesus, we inherit all the commands and the promises given to Israel. This includes God's command to love him with our whole self. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. When the gospel grabs hold of us, we are able to offer God loving obedience. We love from our heart. But the love that is real to us is also God's love that's being poured into our hearts. Now again, notice, this is not a thimbleful. That verb, poured, is the same one used to describe the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. God's Spirit floods our hearts to communicate God's love to us so that we're able to love God and others in return. 
In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brendan Manning tells a story of a young man named Edward. Edward took a a vacation once to Ireland to celebrate his Uncle Seamus' 80th birthday. On the morning of that great day, Edward and his uncle got up before dawn to go walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. And just as the sun began to rise over the lake, Edward's uncle turned and he stared straight at that rising orb. And Edward and his uncle just stood there, side by side, just quietly, for about 20 minutes. And suddenly, the elder, uh, the elderly uncle began to, uh, he turned and he began to skip along the shoreline. A smile just absolutely covered his face. And Edward had to run in order to catch up to him. He asked his uncle, why are you so happy? And his uncle Seamus, with tears just washing down his face, simply said, you see, the father is fond of me. My father is fond of me. Very, very fond of me. The father is fond of us. Our father in heaven is very fond of us. God's love has done everything that we could need. And it's done everything we shall need. We can know God's love for us because of the death of Jesus Christ. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, says Paul. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, notice what Paul's saying here. His words make absolutely no sense unless Jesus, in his life and his death, is the living, loving God who's, took, uh, who's taken on human flesh. I mean, someone once noted it makes no sense for anyone to say, boy, I see that you're in a real mess, but I love you so much, I'm going to uh, send someone else to help you out in your mess. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, Jesse had an accident once on the, the freeway near Hammett Road. When she called, I did not say to her, Oh my, uh, that's not good. Let me see if I can get the neighbor to come and help you out. No, I went as fast as I could so that I could be there for her. The death of Jesus the Messiah demonstrates God's love because the Messiah, Jesus, is the fully human person in whom the living God is fully present. Now Paul doesn't explain how this is. He just assumes it. Jesus is fully divine. And this fact of God's love in Jesus Christ ties everything together. Look at verse 6. We were not only powerless because of sin, we were ungodly. See, God's love reverses the state we were in. Again, Romans 1 verse 18 said God's wrath was being revealed because of our godlessness. Same word as ungodly. Means we were living as if God did not exist. God, in the humanity of Jesus, stooped down to die for us at the very moment when we were about as anti-God as you could get. Ever been in that situation? You know, that place where you felt ignored, people didn't think you uh, mattered much? Talked about you in your presence as if you weren't even there. I mean, you wanted to just, uh, hello, I'm right here. You don't have to ignore me. You would not stoop lower to do something nice for such people because they're treating you as if you're invisible. 
that's what God did. No heavenly thunder. No slap upside the head, though maybe we deserved it. No, God quietly sent his son Jesus into the world in about as humble a position as you possibly could. And he finally let him die, saving the very people who thought they didn't need saving in the first place. God sacrificed himself for clueless people. A people like us, so lost, we didn't even know we were lost. In the middle of our ignorance, God proved his existence to us by hugging us in the embrace of his love. Once there was an archbishop who was hearing a confession of sin from three indifferent teenagers in the church. Uh, The three boys were making a complete joke of a confession. They confessed along to a long list of ridiculous and grievous sins that they had never committed. For them, it was all a big joke. And the archbishop saw through this bad practical joke. So he played along with the first two boys And they ran out of the church laughing. But the third boy, he treated differently. The third boy confessed to the same ridiculous sins. But before the boy left, the archbishop said, Okay, he said, you've confessed these sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance. The archbishop instructed the boy to go to the end of the church, look up at the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, look into Jesus' face and say, You did this all for me, and I don't care about that very much. He told the boy to do it three times. So the boy went up to the picture, looked in Jesus' face, and said, You did this all for me. I don't care that much. And then he did it again. And then he couldn't do it the third time. He broke down in tears. And the archbishop said, the reason that I know this story is because I was that boy. There is something about the cross, about Jesus dying for us, that moves us beyond any kind of theoretical discussion. When we look full in the face of Jesus on the cross, ungodly as we are. We can't help but realize the depth of God's love. That God was willing to come in our flesh and sacrifice himself for us. When this truth grabs hold of us, we can't help but realize that what's grabbing hold of us is the love of God. And in God's love, we live with a guaranteed future. Everyone who belongs to God through faith in what God accomplished in Jesus is assured of final salvation. Verses 9 and 10 state and then restate this truth. It's a how much more argument. Verse 9 says, Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And then verse 10 echoes this statement. 
For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What Paul is saying is that since Jesus stayed on the cross to make us right with God, to justify us, when we were God's enemies, then how much more will we be saved from God's wrath at the final judgment? Paul is always holding in mind this past, present, and future tenses of God's work. Earlier in chapter 2 of Romans, we saw the ultimate future. A day is coming when God will judge all human secrets. God will judge justly, fairly, impartially. We will be judged by God, which might just send a shiver of panic through our souls. But Paul wrote in chapters 3 and 4, when we believe in God, in God's good news about Jesus, we are assured in the present that we're part of the Abraham, the covenant family. Our sins are forgiven. In God's court, the verdict has been returned. Vindicated. In the right. So now, the million dollar question. What about the rest of this life? How do we, with the rest of our lives to live, lives in which we might do all kinds of ungodly things, how are we, nevertheless, given this assurance that the future verdict is already known? Because that's what Paul's talking about. Now, as I said, Paul writes much of Romans 5 through 8 in reply to this question. But here's where Paul starts. Again, N.T. Wright, I think, helps put it well. The Christian hope for the verdict issued in the present to be reaffirmed in the future is based securely on what God has done already in the death of Jesus. Jesus the Messiah died on our behalf when we were weak, helpless sinners. That's verses 6 and 8. This demonstrates the extent of God's love. And if God loves us that much, we can trust God to rescue us from that day of judgment. Verse 9. I mean, just have a look. God did the unthinkable. He sent his son to die for us while we, were, while we had nothing going for us. We had nothing to commend us to God. The truth is, God should have been revolted by us. We were his enemies. Verse 10. But now we are God's friends. Just look at verses 1 and 2 again. We are reconciled to God. And if we're God's friends... God won't abandon us after all. This is not the way our world works. If you have too many speeding tickets and a minor accident, even if it wasn't your fault, your insurance company just might drop you. And they'll send you a letter telling you to seek coverage elsewhere. Because you're just not good enough for that insurance company. I mean, imagine if God worked that way. Dear Mr. Boonstra, we're writing in response to your morning request for forgiveness. We're sorry to inform you that you've reached your quota of sins. Our records show that since you've been, since you've been with our coverage, you've erred seven times in the area of greed. In addition, your prayer life has been substandard compared to the others of similar age and circumstances. Further review has revealed that you have a tendency to gossip. You're in the 80th percentile. And your kindness to others is in the lower quadrant. All of this makes you a high risk for reoffense and an unlikely candidate for heaven. Thus, we have no choice but to release you to find some other form of coverage with kind regards, the Pearly Gates Underwriting Division. 
how much more, says Paul. If God has done the most difficult thing of making us right through the death and resurrection of Jesus, like climbing up a sheer rock face against all odds to get to a mountaintop, how much more is God likely to complete the job by doing the easy thing of issuing a final verdict about us? Kind of like taking an easy stroll across a grassy field to get to the summit itself. Paul concludes, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now received reconciliation. That is, though we've been humbled to the dust, cutting down every speck of human pride, yet we are confident for our future because of God's love. We boast in God. Jesus died for us while we were mired in sin. Unbelievable. God showed his love for us while we were still enmeshed in sin. (laughs) Yeah, the Father's pretty fond of you. And you believe that, and you have a whole new relationship with God. You gain access by faith to God's grace, a grace that grants us hope no matter what comes our way. Not only a a hope for now, but also a hope for the future. We have the hope of glory. That's what God made us for in the first place. To bear His image, His likeness. To bear His glory. From the beginning, God intended glory for us. And now it's become reality. Through the love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we're astounded by these words of assurance, when it looked like every single thing was going against us, that you proved your love and grace to us in Jesus Christ, coming to us while we were just in a hopeless state of affairs, coming to us while we were sinners, coming to us when we really had were wanting nothing to do with you. And in that, in that, offering us a relationship with you. Not just a momentary relationship, not just a temporary friendship, an everyday being in your presence relationship. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming how much you care for us, how fond you are of us in and through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.